Hey, thanks for checking out today's episode. Before we jump in, if you'd like even more freelancing secrets completely free, be sure to head on over to learnwithjohn.com and jump on my freelance secrets newsletter because I regularly share secrets for getting more clients and building a thriving freelance business gleaned from my nearly two decades as a freelancer. So if you want to shortcut the time it takes you to go freelance full time and get the lifestyle you're after, you won't want to miss those secrets. You can get that newsletter by going to learnwithjohn.com. Again, that's learnwithjohn.com. Now, on to the episode. So there's this really great story about John Wooden who won 10 NCAA basketball championships in 12 years with the UCLA Bruins, if you're not familiar with who he is. In fact, UCLA's sort of history or tradition as a championship basketball program really comes from John Wooden. And he's also responsible for the quote that is the title of this episode. Anyway, as the story goes, every year he coached, he would start all of his teams off the, the same way. I remember actually hearing this story back when I was in high school. But the very first practice of every year, he'd take the freshmen aside and he would start by teaching them how to tie your shoes. Now, keep in mind, these were the nation's top recruits. The best high school basketball players in the country were typically going to UCLA. And these are guys that would go on to become, you know, not only college, but NBA Hall of Famers and people like Bill Walton and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and so forth. So these were really good players. And he'd start them off by showing them how to tie their shoes. So he'd show them how to put on their socks, how to lace their shoes, how to tie them. Every painstaking detail he would walk them through. And then later he would show them how to tuck in their shirts and how to tie the knot in their shorts. How to shower properly and dry themselves off and comb their hair. And all of these little, minute, seemingly unimportant details. And it's easy to laugh at or mock or make fun of, but... 10 championships in 12 years sort of speaks for itself. So what was the point of him doing all of this? Well, all of those things were important for a basketball player. For example, he would say that, you know, putting your socks on right and tying your shoes correctly would keep you from getting blisters. And if you had blisters, you couldn't play, etc. So the, individually, the things were important, but it was really more about attention to detail. And here's Wooden's full quote. He said, it's the little details that are vital. Little things make the big things happen. And those little details, he believed, are what made the championships happen. Because if he could get a player to focus on the little details of putting on their socks and putting on their shoes and tying their shorts and all of these mundane things, he could get them to focus on the details of boxing out and rebounding and passing and shooting, which were the big things. So I bring that up because I'm going to be honest with you. Today's topic might seem a bit mundane. It's not the exciting, flashy business of crafting an offer or killing it on social media or any of the other fun-sounding, exciting things that you might do as a freelancer. It's some of those little details, but they're critical details, details that set the tone for the rest of your interaction with the client. And frankly, the part of the process where the client is most nervous and where things can easily go awry and you can leave a bad impression. And that moment is them actually saying yes and hiring you. What happens to get them there and then after that. So in marketer speak, today what we would be talking about is optimizing the order process or said another way, making it easier for people to give you money. And we're going to look at what I consider the five big rocks of going from 
a quote request. So we created our offer. We got someone to want to hire us. Now what do they do? Well, that's a quote request, and that can take many forms. But going from a quote request to a signed contract and then ultimately a deposit and you starting to work on their pro- their project and how to smooth that process, how to make them feel comfortable throughout that entire process so you have less, quote-unquote, abandonment. You have less issues that come up in that process and you can smoothly move them from being excited about your offer to, again, a signed contract and a deposit and you now actually working on their project. And then how to set the context and all of that and expectations for the project that lead to it being much more likely to be successful and them having a good experience so that they wanna give you referrals and they wanna hire you again and all of those things. This moment is where they're the most nervous. This is where the most tension and the most pressure is on them. And after this, it all switches to you. So you want to make sure in this moment that you're doing everything right so that they feel comfortable throughout the process and that sets you up for good experiences. So those five big rocks then are the actual quote request form, negotiations, contract, the payment terms, and payment processing. So we're going to take each one of those. So when it comes to the quote request form, everything we just did with the offer leads up to this. Uh, It's getting them to fill out this quote request form. And I've seen freelancers use ultra complicated forms. And I think I've seen things as simple as people saying, you know, direct message me or IM me or email me at, right? It's there's, there's this whole range of options that people use. Now, here's what I found with this. When you're starting out and you're not completely overrun with people trying to hire you and you're trying to really get any client you can get, keep the form really simple. So something like name and email and describe your project a bit. Now, me personally, I like to just keep it at that because I don't have a problem sort of qualifying and weeding through people that submit that. But when you're brand new, you want to make it as simple as possible for people. You will have to weed through more people that aren't a good fit, uh, people that are discount shopping, people that really aren't ever going to hire you, all of these different things. You are going to have to weed through that more when you do that. But it's better to get those contacts early on. And if you're not getting any clients at the moment, it's better to have some fish on the hook, essentially, and see what you can work and then kind of figure out how to communicate with people in the negotiation process to actually get them to follow through and hire you. So it's just good for you to have that experience early on. However, as you start to get more clients, uh, you're, you're able to be more picky. So you can start to qualify a little bit in your quote request form and on your sales page, frankly. And so, for, for example, you can include a budget option. And this is kind of a little thing that you can do that maybe isn't obvious right off the bat, but include a budget option. So, hey, tell me what your budget is. And then you set the options and the options kind of indicate to the client the range in which you work. So you might say, uh, tell me your budget, and then the options are two thousand to five thousand dollars, five thousand to ten thousand dollars, and ten thousand to fifteen thousand dollars, and so, or, or whatever it is for you. And so, when clients see that, they recognize, oh, well, I'm gonna have to pay a minimum of two thousand dollars. So that kind of tells them and sets the expectation of what the pricing is going to be. So that's again one subtle thing that you can do to communicate to, to to potential clients the kind of prices you charge and qualify them before they submit the quote request form because if they're not willing to pay that price and i said 2000 it could be 10000 it could be 500 whatever the number is for you but it, it it sort of qualifies them because if they're not willing to pay that price then they just won't even submit um the form 
ultimately, as you work with more clients, what's going to happen is you'll start to figure out the kinds of questions that you need to be asking or the things to put in your quote request form in order to qualify people and get the kind of clients you want and be more picky. So it's going to be different for every freelancer, um, but the good the quote request form is a good way to qualify clients that way as you get going. So that's the quote request form. Next up is then the negotiation process because there's always a negotiation. Someone's going to submit that quote request form and then there's going to be this back and forth asking questions. They might try to haggle price. They might try and push the scope, all of these different things you know, that are, that are going to go back uh, and forth there. And what I've learned when it comes to the actual negotiation of price and scope specifically is that you have bright lines around what you will and won't do. So you want to think about this beforehand. What's the range? What's the lowest price that you'll accept for your service? You want to be clear about that beforehand because you have a price you want to charge and you want to get, but you know, if someone came to you and let's say it's $5,000 and they said, well, what about $4,000? Are you really going to turn that down? Maybe the answer for you is yes, but you want to just be clear about that beforehand. So what's the lowest price you will actually accept for your service? What's your, what's your bright line there? How far will you let the the scope creep? You know, some clients will come in and say, you know, maybe you make it clear that you don't, you uploading content isn't a part of the service that you offer, but a client is really insistent on it. Are you willing to cave on that and do the content piece, right? So again, how far will you let the scope creep? What are you willing to do communication wise? These are common ones that you're going to, that are going to come up in this negotiation process. So Maybe you have it where you communicate with them once a week during their project, but they're like, no, I want to do twice a week. Are you willing to do that? So think about these things beforehand and there's others. And as you work with clients, more things will come up that you'll, you'll want to have bright lines around, but you want to do it beforehand because it's really easy to start saying yes to everything when someone's waving money in your face. So set your boundaries beforehand and then as much as possible, stick to them or don't, but figure out what it is beforehand that you're comfortable uh, doing. And again, early on, you probably should be willing to do a little bit more and to, and and also take a little bit less just to get the clients and get the experience, get the stuff in your portfolio, get the reviews, get the word of mouth, get the referrals, all of those things. You probably should be willing to do a little bit more and take a little bit less early on. But then as you grow, you can afford to be more picky and kind of stick to your guns. So Don't be afraid to reassess, adjust, and then ultimately, again, as you're in that position, be willing to stand up for yourself a little bit more and have clearer, more bright lines because you can turn down this one because you got three more that are waiting for you and they're willing to pay you your price and they're not trying to push the the scope and they're comfortable with your communication process and so forth. So again, there's going to be that negotiation process. Just be will just figure out beforehand what your lines are, what your boundaries are, so that you don't get too tempted by money to go completely out of bounds of what you're actually willing to do or what you can do. Now, ultimately, the point of the negotiation process, they submit the quote request form. Now, there's this kind of back and forth that happens, and what you're pushing towards is a contract. So, first off, yes, you should have a contract. So, if you're not doing that now, you're really kind of leaving yourself vulnerable. I actually did get sued once um, by what I consider to be an unreasonable client in my career. And my contract saved me because I had everything in the contract that that really saved me um, in that situation. So you want to put in clear, explicit terms, everything that you uh, agree to verbally, you want to put that in 
a contract. Of course, the obvious question is, what should a freelance co contract include? And there's a lot of templates and services out there. I personally use uh, Contract Killer. I'll drop a link to that in the show notes page for this episode. That'll be linked in the description. But And, and I like it because it's a nice plain la language contract and it's used by thousands of des designers and developers. But it includes things like scope of services, how written content, the uploaded content that we talked about will be handled, who provides the graphics and images, how changes and revisions are going to be handled, how many there are, how testing is done, how everything's going to be delivered, um, backups, hosting, uh, intellectual property rights, and the payment schedule. And it's nice because it, it includes provisions specifically for designers and developers. So if you're a designer or a developer or a creative of some kind that's close to that, it's really kind of for you. So you're not trying to take something that's not made for designer development and kind of twist it into what you need. It's also written in plain language instead of legalese, which clients tend to appreciate. It makes it easier to understand, read, and I appreciate uh, myself. So that's what I use. Um, and you can use that as an example. And of course, you know, I'm not a lawyer. And if you really want to dig into it, the fine details of it, then you should just contact a lawyer if you have any questions or you're unsure about anything or you just want to have them write the contract um, in order to do that. So that's the best route if you if you really want to get specific with it. And then in terms of getting the contract signed, um, there's Hello Sign and there's a number of other services out there to help you do that. Adobe has a service that'll help you. I'm not going to go deep into that because there's a lot of options and you kind of just pick whatever you want. Um, and so you can kind of do with that whatever you want. The important thing is just making sure you have the contract, you get the contract written, and after the negotiation, then you get them to sign the contract along with what we'll talk about next is uh, some sort of deposit if you're doing that, which I strongly recommend. So that brings us into then the fourth thing, which is the payment terms. And if your contract should, of course, contain your payment terms. So they should be in there. That's one of the things in the contract killer. And there's lots of ways to handle payments. You can do 100% upfront. You could do a 50-50. You could do 100% at the end, which I don't recommend. What I ultimately settled on was a 10-60-30 model. So there's a 10% deposit due when the contract is signed. So after we go, they submit the quote request, we go through a little negotiation, we settle on all the details. I put that in the contract and then I say, here's the contract, read it over. If it's good, sign it. And then your 10% deposit is due. I don't work on anything until I get the 10% deposit and it's a 10% non-refundable deposit. So that just kind of covers me and make sure that I'm dealing with someone who's serious because they're not going to give me, if I'm you know charging $5,000 or $10,000 for a project, they're not going to give me $500 or $1,000 if they're not serious, if they don't really want to follow through. That sort of eliminates all of the people that are trying to scam or get things free or get one over on you, etc. So that 10% deposit is due when the contract is signed. So once I get a signed contract and I get the 10% deposit, that's when I'll start working on your project. Then I do 60% due when the project is complete on my side. Now this works for me because I'm building websites so I can build the site on my local server and I don't have to do anything on their side. It might be different for you if you're a graphic designer or you're writing blog posts or you have some other service. It might not be as simple as that so you want to think that through. But for me, I would just build their website that I was building on my servers. And so it's actually still on my property. I own it at that point. And, but I can let them look at it. I can let them go on the site 
and actually play with it and do all of that stuff, but it's still on my servers and I own it. And so once they're comfortable with that, then I would do, okay, now 60% is due for me to then transfer it over to your servers and install it on your site. And I like doing that because it gets me basically 70% of the payment before I, I put myself at risk before, you know, they could not pay me that last 30%. Because that, that's due after I get done installing it on their site. And now they can look at it on their site and all of that. They could not pay me that. I never actually had anybody do do that. But uh, at least even then, the worst I'm out is 70% or 30%. So I've still got 70% of the payment. So that's how I handled it. Now, again, that may not work for your service. You may need to adjust that or whatever. You may not like that. But as much as possible... What you want to try and do is just keep honest people honest. So set up a payment structure that protects you, but it also keeps them comfortable. That's why I don't like 100% upfront or a 50-50 because that's a lot of money for them to give you upfront and faith and trust. And that's going to lead to less people um, wanting ultimately hiring you. It's going to lead to them being a little more uncomfortable, a little more antsy. It creates a context or a, a, a situation that is a little more high pressure. So... I found the 10-60-30 keeps everybody sort of comfortable, protects me, keeps them comfortable, and so that's what uh, I do. Now, by the way, Lesson 10 in my Beginner's Guide to Freelance course covers all of this in even more depth. So there is a little, there is more to this, and I show you my exact process for collecting payments, how I handle issues, the things you can do to make sure beyond what I've covered here to make sure you don't get hosed, all of that. So... And that course is included in the extended free trial you get when you join Skillshare via my referral link. I'll put that link in the description of this episode, but it's myjohn.us slash BGTF. Okay, so that is the payment terms. And again, those are in the contract. Now you need to actually process the payment and accept it. So again, there's lots of options here. I personally use QuickBooks. And I love it because a client can pay with virtually anything. So credit card, bank account, Google Pay, Apple Pay, PayPal, etc. And then it ties right into my bookkeeping. So I don't have to do anything extra when it comes to bookkeeping. I don't need to connect anything. I don't need to track anything. It's all just right there. Now, the one caveat to that is QuickBooks does have a fairly high transaction fee. So, you know, for a $5,000 project, I might pay over $100 or so for the processing of all that. Comparatively, it's probably not all that big of a deal, but you may not you know, want to do that or whatever. So that's sort of up to you. They're all going to have sort of pro pro uh, processing fees. And it's worth it for me for the ease of use of using QuickBooks. It really has eliminated my bookkeeping time down to almost zero. So that's why I like it. But you can use PayPal. You can use Venmo. There's tons of options out there. I'm not going to, again, go into all of that. I've, I feel like you can kind of figure that stuff out. But you just want to make that process really, really simple for them. And, you know, be willing to work on their terms a little bit. So I generally will use QuickBooks, but I've had people send me checks. I've had people say, oh, I'd prefer to use PayPal, you know, and other things. And ultimately, if they're really insistent on something, then I'll let them pay me the way that they want uh, to pay me. And so then stepping back, that sort of takes you from what we talked about in the last couple episodes of creating a res, uh, irresistible offer and making people want to hire you to now a signed contract and a deposit. And now you're ready 
to work. You have terms in place and you're, you're ready to go. So up next, we'll get into delivering your service um, and some tricks I've learned for delivering in a way that creates word of mouth. So not just, you know, every, everybody, every freelancer is going to have different things that they do. So you might be a web developer, a graphic designer, or creating blog posts or whatever. And so I can't get into the specifics of your particular, you know, solution or service that you're delivering, but I can cover some universal things, no matter what you do, that you can do to create a delivery experience that creates word of mouth. And that's the key to success in any, any service business is word of mouth. And so that's what we're going to do tomorrow. We'll start with an onboarding process that I use that I found to be really effective for really creating a great first impression for that experience. And if you can create that great first impression, it sort of takes the pressure off everything else. I was watching a YouTube video the other day. Actually, a lady talked about how she signed up for a coaching program and she didn't get anything from the lady who she signed up with for almost two weeks. And in that two weeks, she was essentially losing her mind, thinking she got scammed and all of these different things. And then ultimately, the lady who was running the coaching program, you know, got everything set up and they started working together and she had a great experience. But it was sort of hampered by those two weeks where she didn't really have a good onboarding experience. So we'll talk about how to do that onboarding experience right after your client has made maybe one of the biggest decisions of their life, maybe giving you all the money that they have at that moment. And it's this huge decision for them. And it was nerve wracking. And now what happens? So that's what we're going to talk about with the onboarding process. And again, if you want to jump ahead on all of this, learn it all faster, get to results faster and get even more depth and tricks, then be sure to check out my beginner's guide to freelance course on Skillshare because all this stuff is in there. Uh, and you can get it via the extended free trial that you get when you use my referral link. So you can get it essentially free um, using that referral link. So again, that's myjohn.us slash BGTF. And I'll put the link in the description as well. All right, that'll do it for this episode. If you're not subscribed, I'd recommend you do that so you're up to date on all, when all these new episodes come out as we go through. If you got value from uh, this episode, I'd appreciate it if you'd share it with anyone that you know that you think uh, could benefit from it, other freelancers or business owners, etc. cetera. Um, that helps me grow my audience and I would be extremely grateful for that. All right, that's it. We'll talk to you next time.